We're going to continue to major in the minors this morning. Um, this will be a, a more a lengthy introduction to this book than normal, but I did think it was important to talk about the transition that we're in this morning. You guys know in all the, there's 12 minor prophets, and we've looked at nine. And all those nine were what we would call pre-exile prophets, pre-exile prophets, meaning, and if you remember last week when we looked at Zephaniah, the last one of those, meaning that if you read any of those prophets, you're generally reading messages that have to do with God's judging his people, God's judging the nations, and he's talking about some future a deliverance or prosperity that would sum things up. But it's all pre-exile, and so it generally centers on warnings and impending judgment. That's normally what we're talking about with the first nine of the minor prophets. But we shift gears dramatically when we go to the tenth of the minor prophets into Haggai this morning. And we move a hundred years forward. If you remember last week, Zephaniah is about 620. Today when we pick up with Haggai, it's at 520 B.C. It's a hundred years fast-forwarded. And intervening, Haggai won't make any sense if you just read this in line without realizing what's happened. In between these two points, Zephaniah and Haggai, uh, Zephaniah about 620, Assyria and and, uh, their capital at Nineveh, that empire destroyed by Babylon in 612. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and Jerusalem submits to his rule. And in 605 and in 597, Nebuchadnezzar takes Judah's brightest and best and most politically astute with him to Babylon. So people like Daniel would have been part of those deportations. And the prophet Ezekiel actually writes from Babylon about things both in Babylon and in Jerusalem. But there would have been these two key deportations. And then in 586 B.C., Zedekiah had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had come and had surrounded Jerusalem. I believe it was a two or three year siege and and broke into the city, obviously, and destroyed the city. So in 586, the temple in all of Jerusalem, the walls are torn down. The temple is left as rubble. And this was in fulfillment. If you remember quite specifically, Jeremiah said from God that Israel would be captives in Babylon 70 years. So along comes, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but uh, there's a decree given in 539 by Cyrus the Great, which we'll look at here a little bit later, that uh, Cyrus the Great takes over, and Cyrus in 538 says, you guys can go back to your homelands. So the Jews, and you can read about this in Ezra, the Jews, or a, a significant group about, of them, about 50,000, leaves Babylon and goes back. And the reason they're going back, and Cyrus makes it clear in Ezra 1, they're going back to rebuild the temple. And things start out well. And they get back to Jerusalem, and and this would be discouraging. You can imagine if your home had burned down and you come back to rebuild it, you're just looking at a pile of destruction. That's what they came back to. So it was a big challenge, and it's all stone, and there's not that many of them, really. So it's a big job. They start well. They come back and they rebuild the altar immediately. And they begin offering God sacrifices again from Mount Zion. This was a good thing. And they relay the foundation for the new temple. And that's where we'll pick up this morning in Haggai. And they start out with great enthusiasm and things look great and and they kind of wind down from there. So as we move into Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, we suddenly move from messages that are about 
judgment and warnings about what's coming to exhortations to those who have come back post-exile. They're coming back to rebuild. And you know, if you look at Jewish history in the Old Testament, there are two key events or two key time periods that define uh, national life of Israel. They're both exoduses. The initial exodus from Egypt and the second exodus is from Babylon. And the destruction of Jerusalem, Babylonian captivity, and then the return is a second exodus. And those key exoduses define Israel's national history. Haggai wrote over a very brief period. It's interesting, he defines his timetables more clearly, I think, than any of the other prophets. He tells you the day he speaks, the day God speaks to him, and the day God speaks. And it's shorter than four months that, that this little two-chapter book occurs. His name means something like festival, hag from the Hebrew hag, or festival of the Lord, which is kind of fitting because it was with the reinstitution, the rebuilding of the temple and the sacrifices this was the place, of course, the temple where the festivals, the Jewish festivals, would all be had, would all be held. So this started out well, and when we pick up in Haggai, you'll see something's wrong, something's gone amiss. So we're in Haggai 1 at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Remember, they've returned to build the temple. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, on all labor of your hands. I love this phrase, consider your ways. This is actually used five times, two in chapter one and three more in chapter two. But God says basically, guys, life's not going the way you thought it would or the way it should. And wouldn't it be a good idea to stop and think this thing through? God says here, I'm blowing away your produce. I'm bringing a drought. No matter how hard you work or how smart you work, you can't get ahead. There's frustration built into everything you're doing. Wouldn't it make sense to stop and think about this? This, this phrase, consider your ways. Stop and think about what's going on, and maybe there's a reason why things are going so poorly for you. Maybe there's a reason. 
I don't know for you guys, but uh, once in a while things are not going well in my life, and I'll go on like this for days or weeks or months without stopping to ask God, Lord, is there a reason why things are not successful the way I thought they'd be? Or God, is there something I'm doing that's not allowing you to bless the way you would want to? God says, stop and consider your ways. If you remember when Israel's coming in from their exodus from Egypt and they're coming into the land, God said to them, words almost straight out of Haggai, God said, I'm going to be with you and I'll give you victory wherever you go. And so do you remember they come in, they cross the Jordan miraculously, they take the city of Jericho and everything's going just the way God said it would. And then there's this little city next door to Jericho called Ai or Ai. Little city, they say, you know, it's so easy a job. We'll just send a few thousand of our guys. You go take the city and come back. But it doesn't go well. And I, the little insignificant city of I, defeats the army of Israel and kills many of their people. And Joshua back at the camp, he can't figure it out. So he's lamenting before God. He gets down on his knees before God. And basically, he's complaining to God, God, you're not keeping your promise. We might as well go back to Egypt if this is what's going to happen. He's not actually considering his ways, so to speak, but he's doing the next best thing. He's talking to God about it. And God tells Joshua, this is the deal. There's sin in Israel, and I can't bless you. And, of course, the story is Achan had stolen what was not supposed to be taken from Jericho, and so this had happened. So they went in knowing God has promised to be with us, and he's going to give us victory wherever we go unless... We don't live up to our side of the covenant, so to speak, unless we don't put God and his things first. And that's exactly what happened with Achan and with Joshua and with the city of Ai. So God has called his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And there's a reason they stopped, and we'll look at that here in just a minute. But they're not doing it. And so he's frustrating all their plans. And he told them if they'd come back, he'd be with them, and they'd rebuild, and life would be good. And it's not. But they haven't stopped to consider their ways. They haven't stopped to get before God and say, God, what's going on? Why is this turning out this way? Why are we frustrated? Why can't we get ahead? And just this is just a suggestion. When your life's not going right, it's a good idea to stop and consider your ways. To stop and consider. Firefighters use this phrase, stop, drop, and roll. You know, if you're on fire, you you do something about it. You stop, you don't run madly ahead, you drop and you roll, you put the thing out. Well, God says to Israel, and God says to us today, when your plans are being frustrated, when life's not going the way you thought God meant it to, stop and consider your ways. And I say this not to suggest that any time life throws you curves and things go poorly, that it's because of sin you'll know at times that's not the reason. All of us in this life, we're going to face frustrations. Think of Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes, sometimes the good get bad things happening to them, and sometimes the bad get good things happening to them, and, and there seems to be no rhyme or reason, but that's because we live on an earth cursed by sin and death. So it doesn't always make sense that way. But when I get sick, or when my life's being frustrated, I just think it's a wise thing to stop and get before God and say, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? I can always ask that. Lord, is something in my life out of whack with you? Am I out of line with your plans so that you're causing or allowing this pain because you're getting my attention? 
You remember C.S. Lewis used to say, God would use pain as a megaphone or a gramophone or something like that to get our attention. Well, it's always appropriate when life's throwing you curves, it's not going well, you're frustrated, to stop and consider your ways, get before God and say, Lord, is there a reason you're causing or allowing this that I'm supposed to take note of? Is there something in my life you want to address? Even if there's not, God always promises to use even the bad things that happen in our life to produce something in us that's of value, to at least do this, which is no mean or small thing, to make us more like his son. That's what he always promises to do. Other things may not come, away the, come along the way we would wish they would, but we can always do that. Lord, are you trying to get my attention? And Lord, how do you want to use this in my life? So when you're frustrated, when everything's going out the window, when it doesn't make sense and you can't get your hands wrapped around whatever's going on, stop and consider your ways. Ask God what's going on. Now, you guys know if you're reading someone else's story and they do wrong, isn't it easy to say from the bleachers or from the safety of your chair reading their story, those stupid people, what were they thinking? Why did they do that? Why weren't they faithful, etc.? You know, that's easy to do, but uh, you need to have some sympathy for these guys, and we'll develop a little sympathy here in Ezra 4. The group that left Babylon came with good intentions, and they were coming to honor God. They were coming back to build the temple, and they started well. And the fact that, that was in 538, the fact that in 520 they weren't building the temple, there were some reasons, some very legitimate reasons for what had happened. So if you want to turn to Ezra 4, and by the way, this whole period that uh, Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries in this time frame, and you can read about this time frame in the book, the historical book of Ezra. They're both mentioned there, and you can read about what's going on during this time. In Ezra 4, verse 4, it says the people of the land, this would be the Samaritans, maybe some of the Edomites left, but the people who lived in the land of Judah, when the Jews came back, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia, which is when Haggai lives. Verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In Ezra 4.17, the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe. In verse 21, issue a decree, the king said, to make these men stop, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Verse 23, as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. By the way, you'll notice a series of kings by name. This is taking place over years of time so that one king gets a letter and the next king gets a letter, and they're looking at this, and, and the years are rolling by as they do. So here's the deal. They've come back. They've started well. But the people of the land don't want to see the Jews back in the land and successful. Because remember, in their 70-year absence, other people have moved in and have taken over. They don't want the Jews back in the land. And so it says they frighten them, they discourage them, and then they bring in the big guns. They write letters to the kings of Persia saying, you don't want these people rebuilding. These are a, a, 
uh, people that are given to revolution and you'll lose your taxes, etc. And so for a while, at least, there's a royal edict and they come with swords and spears and say the work is over. So you can imagine, initially, the edict comes, the soldiers come, and the work stops. And certainly none of us would fault them. This would be like if you and I went to rebuild our own home and the National Guard is there with guns, we're not going to be able to rebuild our home. We're going to have to get something done. So God's not indicting them because the political powers and the military powers stopped the work, but this is what happened. Short term, the edict comes and the soldiers roll up and the work is stopped. But, but then what happens? You know, then the weeks go by and then the months go by. And now the years have gone by. Remember, this is 18 years after they came back. So what's, what's going on in this time frame? And, and what are they doing to accomplish God's mission of rebuilding the temple? What are they doing about it? And this seems to be the indictment. They're not doing anything about it. Initially, we understand because the military shows up by the king's orders and says, no way. But what happens over those intervening years? They don't do anything. What starts as an impossibility eventually appears to become a convenience issue because when God addresses them in chapter 1, He says, this is your outlook. It's a fine time to build your own house. And paneling was expensive, you know. Most stuff was stone and plaster in those days. Paneling's expensive. God says, my, my, you've got the time and the money to build these fine crafted homes filled with paneling and my house up on the hill, it's, it's a foundation, it's a, it's a piece of rock. Uh, what's the deal? You see, after a while, life kind of got on like it usually does. And, and now, okay, I can't build the temple now. Well, I'll get to it next year. We'll write the king a letter. We'll do whatever we can, you know, or whatever next year or, or the year after or whatever. And so, But I've got crops to get in this year. And I've got that timber to harvest, and, you know, I've got my craft to ply, and, and so life goes on. And, and I'd come with this great, exalted motivation to honor God and build the temple, but after a while, I've, I've kind of forgotten about it. Because life goes on, and I'm raising my kids, I'm planting my crops, and bringing in the harvest, etc. And, and after a while, I just kind of forget about God and God's priorities. It becomes an inconvenience. And that's the day that Haggai's writing to. And that's the mentality that Haggai's writing to. Not to the time when the soldiers come with spears and swords and say no, no, but to 18 years later when nothing's been done and life's gone on and life's good and why bother? And you guys know, um, no different than today, God is omnipotent, but He generally brings about His will through people like you and I, or through people like those in Haggai's day. And when God starts some work, whatever it is, you know what you can always expect? Opposition. There's always opposition to what God wants to do, because you and I live in a, in a battle zone. Because the forces of darkness fight against God, and God's side, Jesus' side. Matter of fact, if you go back to Joshua, if you remember the, the battle before Jericho, Joshua's praying and he sees an angel and he says, Who are you? Whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? And he says, No, I'm the commander of the host of the Lord. That there's a spiritual battle that we're in. And when God goes about doing something, there's always spiritual opposition. 
And the Jews should have remembered that. And you and I, when we take up things, whatever it is today, whatever work God wants to accomplish in you or through you, you have to expect that there will be opposition. And when opposition rises, that doesn't mean that God is done doing whatever it was He commissioned you to do. It just means that you've got to talk to Him about it and find a way around it. I uh, tip my hat often to people who have a different political persuasion than I do in this sense. How often do you see groups go to state legislatures or to the national legislature to propose their agenda? And they go one year and it's not popular and and they don't get anything done. But they go back the next year and, and they go back the next year and they go back the next year. And you know what? Eventually they chip away at things and their agenda becomes law. And it's because they don't give up. They have an agenda. They're highly motivated and they stick with it. And they take their licks and their lumps and their losses and they come back to fight another day. And basically, in this situation, in Haggai's day, they took their licks and their lumps and they said, oh, well, we can't do this. We'll just get on with the business of living. And I just think it's funny for us, too. You know, sometimes we will start something. You'll start a church. Or you'll, you'll decide that you're going to start your own quiet times. Or you'll decide that you're going to share your faith. You're going to talk about Christ to other people. And, and suddenly, it seems like kind of the bottom falls out of your life in one area or another. And it makes you pull back, which would be the point. And when that's happening, God basically is saying, guys, if you've got time for your agendas, you've got time for mine. If you've got time for your house, you've got time for mine. And really, in the end, this scenario was about the people forgetting God and putting them and themselves first. And it's easy to do the same thing. It became an issue of convenience. Back in Haggai 1, verse 12, says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence or fear for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Verse 4, Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage. Courage, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, don't fear. God tells the people basically again, you guys come back, you do the work, and I guarantee success. And this is interesting, the repetition used here. Three times God says here in chapter 2 that God will be with them personally. Their success is guaranteed by His presence just as it had been when they came out in the exodus from Egypt. Remember, God has said, no one will be able to withstand you. I'll be with you. He echoes the same thing here again. 
So through Haggai, he says, guys, get back to the work, and I guarantee success because I personally, the God of all power, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of the miracles of the Exodus, I personally will be with you. And then also he says eight times in chapter 2, he says, I will do such and such. I will do such and such. God says eight times, just so they'll know, I'm behind this and I'm going to accomplish my purpose. And I love this too. In verse 14, it says that God himself stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people. In other words, God says this to him, guys, I'm in charge. I'll be with you. I will accomplish all my purposes. And I will personally stir you up, even giving you the motivation to engage and to succeed. So God says that their success is dependent on His presence, His will, His power. In other words, it's going to get done. All they have to do, in a sense, is get on board. If they'll get on the train, the power is God's. He'll get them to the end. It's His power. It's His presence. That's what's going to bring this to pass. By the way, this is an Old Testament example. When you read Haggai 1 or or portions of chapter 2 as well, I hope you think of Matthew 6.33 where Jesus says, If you'll seek me and my righteousness first, then I'll give all these other things to you. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Don't be like the Gentiles who don't know God, and they're worried. And they're worried about all these things, about what they'll eat, what they'll drink, what they'll put on. They're worried about all the material things of life. And Jesus says, this is the deal. If you'll put me and my things first, then I'll take care of all those needs that you have. I know about them. You put me and my things first, and I'll take care of all your needs. And this is true, too. You know, if you pray the Lord's, what's called the Lord's Prayer, the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, do you remember the sequence of events in that prayer? About our Father, you're in heaven. Holy, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is, Jesus says, when you pray, you pray that God's will be accomplished. And after you've talked about God, that he's holy and he's to be worshipped, and you've prayed that his will would be done, his things are first, then what do you do? Then you say, give us this day our daily bread. Who, Who and what do you put first? God's first, his agenda's first. And then you ask for the things that concern this life. It's the same thing. And it's also why when you look in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, what does God say first? He always says the same thing. I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. When you and I put our houses and our meals, whatever you think, we're making an idol, we're putting something between God and us. That's what this comes down to, and God simply cannot bless that. It's not based on truth. Anything that we put between God and us or any agenda or any person that we put over God is an idol. If we put God and His things first, He is free to bless us. It may not always look the way you want. It may not always be the way the blessing you thought it should look. But God makes a promise that if we'll put Him and His things first, He'll take care of everything else. And that's exactly what's going on in Haggai. This is a great illustration of exactly that same thing. God comes to them and he says, you've left me in my agenda. And so I'm frustrating your plans. 
But if you'll turn and if you'll put me and my things first again, I'll give you success in everything else because things will be in their proper perspective. This whole thing about them coming back, I want to read two passages again, one out of Ezra. Um, this, is, there's, uh, this is one of the most remarkable uh, prophecies in its fulfillment, I would argue, in all of the Bible. The Jews return from Babylon. If you look in Ezra 1, 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Do you see that same word? Who stirred up Cyrus' spirit? God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Who stirred up through Haggai, the priests and the governor and the people? God. In other words, this is God's train. He's bringing it to pass. It's him and his work and his power. Verse 2, it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God in Jerusalem. The Jews did not specifically, necessarily, go up and petition Cyrus. Cyrus says, I'm rebuilding the house of God in Jerusalem. And so, Jews, I want you to go back to your homeland and rebuild the temple. Why did Cyrus do this? In Ezra 1, it says God stirred up his spirit. But is there more to it than that? If you look in Isaiah 44 and 45, these verses are one of the reasons why, if you're a liberal uh, theologian, you say that there's a second and a third Isaiah. Because Isaiah writes, say, just around 750, and Cyrus comes in just, say, around 550, so a couple hundred years later. But through Isaiah, God had said this. In Isaiah 44, 28, God's going through a list of things that he does which proves he's God and someone else isn't. And in that list, he says, It's I who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He'll perform my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Remember, this is 750 B.C., the temple standing. There is no Cyrus. This is 200 years before the guy has arrived on the scene. And the Jews are in Jerusalem. There's no destruction. There's nothing to come back and rebuild. It's standing. Isaiah 45, 1, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I've taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him, to loose the loin of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen. I have also called you by your name. I have given you the title of honor, though you have not known me. Two hundred years before there's a Cyrus, king of Persia, God says, Cyrus is my servant. I'm going to raise him up. I'm going to make him the king. Why? because he's going to perform my purpose, which is to rebuild a city and a temple that have not been destroyed. It said, Josephus writes, Josephus who, lit, who was alive during Jesus' lifetime, Josephus wrote and said that the Jews in Babylon showed King Cyrus Isaiah 44 and 45, and that that was the means that God used to stir up Cyrus' 
to send them back to the temple. But this was written 200 years before he was king. He acts on the information and sends the Jews back. The point of all this for me is this. God is accomplishing his purposes. And nothing's going to stop it. And he tells his people in Jerusalem, guys, get on the train. You're frustrated because you're not doing my will. You're not accomplishing my purposes. And they will be accomplished. You know, sometimes I think our view of God is so small that we're afraid. Uh, I'll bet all of us have felt it sometime. God wants us to do something and we don't do it. And that's not good. And we should be convicted. And we should confess that to God. But we're afraid that somehow the eternal purposes of God have been thwarted. And that if I don't communicate the gospel with this person or don't communicate it just right, they won't be saved. Or if I blow it in one way or another, that somehow God's plans on the earth, somehow they're frustrated. And that just is not the case. Not the case at all. God is sovereignly orchestrating the affairs of men on the earth to accomplish His purposes. You remember the proverb that says the, the heart of the king is like water. God turns it whatever ways. That sounds manipulative, and you know what? It is. God says here he's manipulating the will, if you will, of a king and of a governor and of a priest and of all these people to accomplish his purpose. And he makes no excuses about it. It says he stirred up their spirits. God stirred up. He interacted within them in a way that wouldn't have happened without his intervention. God is the locomotive engineer. He's driving the train, and he invites them to get on. His purposes will be fulfilled. And if you and I blow it in little or big ways, this is not a good thing. I'm not advocating this. God's purposes are still going to go through. They're not going to be frustrated. God is in control. The beauty of this for me is, just like the Jews in Haggai's day, God says, guys, all you got to do is follow me. You put me and my things first, and I'll take care of everything else. So, in essence, all he's saying is for us to say yes to him and to whatever he's doing. We don't have to be ultimately responsible to pull anything off. We don't have to say things just right. We don't have to live a perfect life. None of us will. Of course, we're all inconsistent. We're all crackpots. God says he's still accomplishing his purposes. He is asking for this willingness and this attitude of heart in which we say, God, you're God, and we're going to put you and your things above whatever else we would do otherwise. We're not going to go build our own house first. We're going to build your house. We're going to put you and your things first. You know, God is still building a temple today. And as you know, it's a temple made without hands, so to speak. And it's not stones anymore, although Peter calls them living stones. But you know, God's building the temple today. He calls it the church. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't overpower it. Think about the church in the days of uh, Rome. Uh, Christians literally were being burned like candlesticks by the hundreds and thousands on the roads in Palestine and in Italy and Rome. And they were being persecuted in the Colosseum. And they were being wiped out left and right. And today, where's the Roman Empire? Doesn't exist. But where's the church? It's thriving. It's going on. We talked in Sunday school. 
the church is being severely persecuted in other parts of the world, and Christians are being martyred. In fact, if you do any reading on this at all, you know numerically there are more, moder uh, more moder martyrs per year today than any time in history because the population of the earth is so great that even though we might think of other times in history, maybe per capita, as being more violent, total numbers, there are more martyrs every year now, Christian martyrs, than in any time in history. And if you go to those areas, to Indonesia, to North Africa, to China, it might look like evil is winning, but it won't in the end. God is still building His church, and Jesus said, hell itself won't prevail against it. I am building my church, just as He was building the temple. He says the job is going to get done, and He asks us to be a part of that. And we've got a commission no less than those Jews in Haggai's day, Matthew 28. This is interesting too, you know, four Gospels, four versions of the same story. But Matthew is the one about the king of Israel, the Messiah. And the king gives his commission to his followers before he leaves. In Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Look at the promise he ends with, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He told the Jews in Haggai's day they'd succeed because he'd be with them. And when he leaves the earth to build his church, he says exactly the same thing. Guys, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Your success is guaranteed by my presence. We're under commission to build the temple of God no less than the Jews in Haggai's day. We have exactly the same promises too. God will be with us and he will accomplish his purposes. The test for us always gets down just to this thing about, Lord, am I willing to make your agenda my agenda? God, am I willing to put you and your things first? Because that's the plan that God guarantees. When you see God calling you to any one of these roles in His building, His church, you know when you go in that there will be opposition. Discouragement will come in one form or another. It's just... It's to be expected. And frankly, we're naive <clears throat> when we undertake some work that we believe God is in and we get opposition and our first response is, God, what did I do wrong? We ought to be thinking we must be doing something right. And not, I'm going to back off of this thing God wants me to do, but God, how do I proceed? What's your plan? When Joshua went in to take Jericho, he met with the commander of the host of the Lord. And the commander of the host of the Lord said, this is my battle, you're part of my army, and I'll take care of things. And then he told them what to do. That's all we're called to. So when, when we begin to obey whatever area it is that God has you and I building his church in, whatever that looks like, and, and it takes a myriad of forms. Uh, God may have you sharing with people at work. You may be a full-time student. Who knows? Anything and everything under the sun, God may have you in as part of him building his church. That's your commission. That's the area he wants you to serve. And when there's opposition, don't back down. You can stop and you can pray and you can ask God, clarify, how do I proceed? You may come to a real stop sign and you may need to figure out a different way to go about it. But don't take that as God saying you're not responsible for him and his agenda. Ask him, Lord, what do I do next? How do I work around this? How are you allowing me to proceed. 
You and I, like the Jews in Haggai's day, we live in a culture which is materially very successful and very comfortable. And so it's easy to say to God, God, another day I will go and do that. Or I will contribute to that, that cause or that ministry later. I'm going to take care of these things first. I'm going to do these things first. And when I get around to it, when I'll, everything else is taken care of, I'll think about whatever it is I thought you were calling me to. You know, it's easy to be lulled into a sense of complacency as they were. Guys, they weren't doing anything inherently wrong. Nothing inherently wrong other than they weren't putting God and His things first. Otherwise, they were planting their crops. They were trying to provide for their families. We would have said, gosh, exemplary lifestyle, except one thing, the key thing, the main thing. They weren't putting God and His things first. And when you face the opposition, you can stop, drop, and roll, or whatever it is in your mind, but stop and consider your ways. Just stop and say, Lord, what perspective do I need to have on this? Are you trying to get my attention? Am I doing something that's bringing this frustration about? Do I need to change what I'm doing in my life? Are you in this, or do I just need to say, I'm facing opposition. God, I entrust myself to you into your hands, and you show me the way around. But I just sign the parallels between our day and Haggai's day are just abundant and they're clear. And the bottom line is the temple's still being built. We're still under commission. And God still says, if you put me and my things first, I'll take care of all the other issues of life. But if you put you and your things first, you're going to face frustration in life. So stop and reconsider. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you keep things so simple to put you and your things first, Lord, and allow you to take care of the other issues of life. And uh, Lord, we find all kinds of reasons why uh, we can't do that or shouldn't do that. Lord, there's all kinds of times and opportunities for us to say uh, no thanks and choose comfort and some temporary benefit rather than putting you and your things first. I pray that you'd lead all of us in the ways of peace. This book ends on a note of peace, Lord. Lead us in the ways of peace by simply reconciling ourselves to you and to your agenda. You're God and we're not. You're our Savior and our King. And you've commissioned us in your service. And Lord, we're here to do your will. Help us to see that those under commission. And Lord, that in doing so, it's not a burdensome, toilsome life you call us to, but rather it's a yoke that's easy. It's a burden that is light because it's actually you providing the power to get your will done. Lord, help us consider today if there's anything in our life that's keeping us from you and your good will for us. In Jesus' name, amen.